0: To see everybody here on Easter to celebrate this day, and like I said, I think that Sunday is one of the best days of the week, right? This is my most favorite thing to do because it's something that I get to choose to do. How many things in life do you really get to choose to do? Not many, right? You have to go to work, you have to pay the bills, you have to feed your kids, you know what I mean? Uh, you got to do a lot of things, but we 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 chose to be here, right? We're not obligated, we're not forced, we choose to be here, and here's what I love about coming to church and being with our friends and with people that we'd like to be around. Most of the time, we leave with more than what we gave, right? We can come here tired. We had to run around, get the kids together. Sunday's the hardest day, I think, to get ready and just to get out of bed. But we come here and we leave away refreshed. We have more hope than what we came with. We know that tomorrow is brighter than today, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And I just think it's the best thing we get to do with our week. Like I'm all about going to work, making money, paying the bills. I think that's good, but it doesn't compare to what God has given us the opportunity to do to come to church. So I'm, I say all that to say I'm excited to see everybody here and that we are in our third and final week of a series entitled, What is Love?, which we've been attempting to define what love really is, especially against the backdrop of our culture and society, which attempts to Uh, tell us what love is and inundates us with messages and pictures and of what love is what it should feel like right what it should look like how we should know when we are experiencing love and so what we decided to do is go right to first corinthians chapter 13 go to the bible it's affectionately known as the love chapter i mean we read it at weddings and marriage counseling some people take it and post it on their on their facebook page or their instagram page or we have pictures of it on our walls in our homes and in churches and it's it's a very beautiful passage of Scripture, but more than that, it's an incredibly relevant and powerful passage of Scripture in defining for us what love is, and that love is not a destination, right? Love is not a feeling. Love is not an action. Love is not sex, right? Love is, is not just this journey, because we, we talked about that we all have a, a, a love-shaped size hole in us somewhere that we long to fill, like. We want to know what love is, not just by, by definition, but by experience, right? We were made to love and to be loved. And so week one, we, we talked through some of that and, and, and talked about, it. it's not so much that what love is, but it's who. Who is love? And that is God. I mean, the Bible tells us in 1 John that God is love. He himself. So love is not a what. It's not a thing. It's a person, and it's God himself. And then last week, we looked at, Some very familiar passage of Scripture, verses 4, 5, and 6, that says this love is patient, it is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it keeps no record of wrong, does not delight in evil, but always rejoices with the truth. You notice something there? Love is never defined as a feeling. We talk a lot about in our culture about feeling love, right? I just really feel like I love that person. I feel like they love me. I don't know what love feels like. I know what I felt when I thought I was in love, but... I've been wrong more than I've been right regarding feelings. And talked about those actions of love, the personification of love. What I want to do this morning and hopefully attempting to wrap this thing up is look at verse 7 of First Corinthians chapter 13 and these four what they call personifications of love. This remaining verse that Paul has not in the chapter but in his description of love. It's a, it's a great conclusion to what he's been writing about. So if you would, if you'd go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, maybe in your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, however you read God's word. If you don't have any of that, it's okay. We've got it on the screens behind me. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 7, and we'll focus in on chapter, or excuse me, on verse 7 today. It says this, it says, If I could speak all languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices wherever the truth wins out. In verse 7, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we just thank you so much for today and the opportunity to be here. And, and I just ask you, Holy Spirit, to do what you do best and help and show us Jesus, that he's real, that he's alive, and that he longs to be in a relationship with us and show us him in the very areas of our life where we need him the most, where we're hurting the most, where we're confused the most, where we just need him. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help me preach this message clearly and effectively and above all else, quickly. Everybody said, amen. You like quick sermons, huh? Me too. I really try. But uh, anybody in here ever ever think about the idea of, of having a, like an entourage or a bodyguard? You ever think that'd be cool? You ever watch people on TV with, with their entourages? Nobody? Or you just don't want to admit it? I mean, come on. Don't you think the idea of having people around you who like you and want to be with you would be kind of neat? Like, they, wherever you go, they go. And not so much from the perspective of them just lip service to you, but, like, actually being your, 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 your bodyguard, like, keeping you safe and, and watching out for you. I mean, I've never had a bodyguard. Uh, I've never been really important enough to have a bodyguard you know what I mean? I don't, or people just don't like me enough to want to keep me safe. But I, I need someone to watch out for me because I, I don't always pay attention, especially if I'm around other people. If I'm driving, you and I are driving somewhere, and we get in a really good conversation, I'm going to value our conversation more than I am the direction that we're heading. Not like I'll cross the middle line or anything, but I'll pass up turns. We'll just go, but we're talking. You know what I mean? Like, we're, 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 we're doing life. Do what I do best. I talk. I get paid to talk. And uh, I just forget about everything else. I'm walking down the street talking to you. I'm oblivious to anything that's going on. And so I, I, I need that. Maybe, maybe you don't think it would be cool. Maybe you found yourself in a situation before where you thought you could benefit from a bodyguard. Anybody been in a compromising situation where you didn't know if you could take the person next to you? Like, you're really good at running your mouth, but you're not really good at backing that up. Anybody? I've known some people like that. I may have been that person. But I think deep down, though, we we do have a desire to want people to be around us, to want people to to protect us in some way. I was in Haiti in 2012 with a couple friends. We went there on a missions trip. It's two years after the earthquake. And we were in Port-au-Prince, the capital city. We were packed into a Land Rover that had about 400,000 miles on it. And that's no joke. No ventilation no air conditioning, and we we're packed in like sardines. And we're driving around and diesel fumes are everywhere. They have no concept of, of emissions there. They just go. And we're driving around and we're in the vehicle with the missionary and he married a Haitian woman. And so we're with some of his family and their friends. And so we, we drive up to what is the presidential palace. And in 2010, in the earthquake, it was, it was uh, damaged and it was still un, unfixed then. And I think it's still unfixed today. And so we pile out of the car. I was just looking at a chance to get out of that vehicle. Get out of the vehicle. I walk over to the gate, and I'm just taking, i got my cell phone. i got arms through the wire gate taking pictures and, and knowing myself. I'm just oblivious to everything going on. I'm, I, don't even, I don't even know. I'm just looking at this building that looks like the White House, but it's sunken in. I'm taking pictures, and I turn around, and there's this group of Haitian guys around me that I don't, I don't know. They weren't the guys in the car. And they start speaking English to me. So I'm like, okay, maybe they're just really friendly. And I'm talking to them, and it doesn't seem as though there's any danger. It doesn't seem as though things are going on, but I remember the Haitian guys, the family and friends of the missionary, got out of the vehicle and came to where we were at and positioned themselves in such a way that let those guys know that, hey, you need to leave them alone. I mean, it wasn't like tense or anything. I don't even know if there was a real threat, but all I knew is they were there and just kind of picking up on body language like, all right, these guys, they turn around and they left and one of the guys mentioned to me, he said, those guys were no good. And I began to think to myself, I, I thought, wow, this is all split second, right? I think, man, that's pretty cool. I feel, I feel safer now. I didn't know I was in danger, but I guess I was. Now I'm safe. I was oblivious. I feel safe. I, I felt comforted. But it went a little bit deeper than that. I, I began to feel some level of importance, not like I'm super important or arrogance, but think these These guys got out of a vehicle, came to where I was at. They don't they don't really know me. It doesn't benefit them in any way, shape, or form to to protect me, right? Like what are they going to gain? I'm gonna go back to the US and they're still gonna be here. I mean, I don't add any value to their life. They don't necessarily add any value to my life as in the grand scheme of things. Now we add value to one another, but they would do that for me. And again, I'm not saying they put their life on the line. I don't know the degree to which the situation was, was even dangerous. But it just kind of hit me that I think we all have that desire, right? To want to know that there's somebody or something out there that values us more than they value themselves, that values our safety and our life more than they value their own. I mean, isn't that what a bodyguard does, right? Right? They, their sole purpose in life and their job is to protect someone other than themselves. They put themselves in harm's way to protect the well-being of a person, whether they like them or not. That's their job. That's what they do. That's pretty amazing that they would straight up die for somebody else. Maybe it's a calling. Maybe it's a good paycheck. I don't know. But it, that kind of Love, respect, admiration, just that kind of thing I think is really incredible. And I, I said, like I said, I think we all desire that. You know, in verse 7, here when Paul's talking about love and he, he writes these like four personifications of love, great theologian and preacher in history, Charles Spurgeon said that this verse. On one hand, these four things, they're like love's sweet companions on one side, but on the other, they're love's four soldiers against evil in our lives. We've been talking a lot about love over the past couple weeks, and it's good for us to understand that the word love that Paul uses here in the Greek is is this word agape, which literally means it's a selfless kind of love. It's a non-sexual affection, right? Because love is not sex. It's not a feeling. It's not a transaction. It's just this... This selfless love that puts the needs of others before itself, and it loves because that's all it can do. It loves. The object of its affection, it just loves. Not because it ever did anything to gain it, not because it qualifies for it, it just loves. Like if you have children, you just love your children, right? They never did anything for you. And for a big period of their life, they're not going to do anything for you. You're going to do everything for them. It's, it's that kind of thing. It just, it just loves. I want to talk about these four personifications of love, these four soldiers of love, or what I call love's entourage, right? Love's bodyguards in our lives. The first one is this. This is that love never gives up. Love never gives up. What it really means is is some translations say love bears all things, and it has this idea of, of covering all things. And it makes special mention of, when you read the definition and study it, things that are unpleasant and difficult. And it has this connotation that it's doing it not for itself, but for the benefit of the person in which it's loving, for the object of its affection. Well, does does cover all things, does that mean that it just looks at the bad and and disregards it and says, oh, it's not that bad, I'm just going to cover it up? No, it means that it takes inventory of all the good, right? All the bad, all the negative, what we'd call all the mistakes that we make the sin that we have in our life, all of that, love looks at that, it embraces it, it changes us, and it loves itself, it loves through it, right? So that means that there's nothing in your life today which the love of God or God himself looks at and says, that's just too big of a mess, I'm not even going to mess with it. Like, get that fixed and then you may qualify. No, it covers all things. It never gives up on the object of its affection. That's pretty incredible. So I think that we, we identify most of ourselves. We say, oh, yeah, there's some good, but we focus so much on the bad and the negative, right? And I'm not saying we should never do that, but our, our majority time of thinking is spent looking at the negative, thinking, how could this person ever like me? How could I ever do this? Because I'm, I'm just jacked up, you know what I mean? And then it, we think that way kind of horizontally with people, and then it comes to this concept of God and say, how could he ever, because all the stuff, but it, 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 it covers it, it bears it, it never gives up. It, it embraces it and it changes it. And then the second member of this entourage of love says this. It says that love never loses faith. Never loses faith. What this means is, is that love believes the best about us at all times. So First hand, it, it sees all of the bad. It never gives up on us. And then it, 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 it always believes the best about us. It always believes the truth. It always believes that our tomorrow is greater than our today. It believes that even though you made this decision, I know who you are deep down inside and I believe the best about you. Even when you screw up, even when we When we make the biggest mistakes of our lives and we think that it's completely over, the love of God says, I see that, I recognize that, I don't agree with that, but instead of running away from that and rejecting that, I'm running to that to change that, and I'm going to speak to who you are because it's who I created you to be. Anybody wish you had someone like that in your life that would believe the best about you at all times? Like we recognize that we, there is a best in us. We don't, always don't know how to get to that best or how to unearth that best. But this is what God's love does for us. It believes the best at all times. And then third, it says that love is always hopeful. It always hopes. Now we can think that hope and love, or hope and faith are kind of the same thing. We can, them, we can get them mixed up. But they're different. Faith believes the best about us. But hope in the Bible means this, it's a confident expectation of a future good. It means this, that it looks to our future with not with pessimism, but with optimism. Not an optimism that's rooted in our own ability, or not an optimism that's rooted in if-then statements, like, if I get this job, then I'll make a lot of money. Or, if I marry this person, then my life will be complete. Or, if I stop doing this... Then I'll be successful. It's not, it's not a, a hope and or optimism that's built on what we can or can't do. It's a hope that's built on the finished work of Jesus Christ. On something that's already done and finished in Jesus. It's basically God hoping in his own ability. Because his ability never fails, right? He never fails. He has a confident expectation that your tomorrow is greater than your today. There's a scripture in Romans, chapter 4, verse 18. It's talking about this man named Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. He promised him that him and his wife Sarah would have a son. And that from this, this son, the whole world would be blessed. They waited like 25 years for this to happen. They were old by the time they had a child. They were in their 90s. Abraham was 100. Sarah was you know, it's a long, long time. And this is what it records about Abraham. It says, this in Romans fourteen. even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you'll have. I love that phrase. It says, even when there was no reason to hope, there was no human reason on the face of the earth left to have hope, but Abraham kept hoping. That's the kind of hope that, we're ha- that we have. This hope that love has for us. How many of you could identify areas in your life that you feel like maybe God spoke to you about or maybe you were just believing for something and now it hasn't happened and there's no reason left to hope whatsoever? You think that you have extended, are gone to the fullest extent of God's forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, and his love for you. Like there is no hope whatsoever. There's nothing left that you look at, that you perceive, that you sense, that you feel that would lead you to believe that you can still hope. That's kind of where Abraham found himself. And I think... That that's where we find ourselves a lot. There is no reason to hope. But then God says through his love, there is. And against all reason to continue hoping, keep hoping. And what is that hope? It's Jesus. That while we still have breath in our lungs, there is always the opportunity and the invitation to begin a relationship with him and believe that he is who he says he is. Whether you're here this morning, whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, he's always there waiting to save us, to heal us, to restore us, and to fulfill our lives. It's through this entourage of love that we call hope. It's pretty amazing that, there is, that our destiny, that our history, excuse me, does not rob us of our destiny. That what you did yesterday cannot rob you of what God has called you to do today. You can't screw it up. You can delay it. You can convolute it. You can confuse it. It can be really dirty and messy, but God redeems everything and restores everything. That's hope right there, that today, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. He makes all things new. It's not too late. I don't care if you're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90 in here this morning. It's not too late. There is no expiration date on the calling of your life, the purpose and the plan for your life. It may not be what it could have been, but it'll be way better than what you think it can be or what you are in the direction that you're continuing. That's the hope that we have. And what I like about it is, I'm not trying to dig in myself and find it because I'll be honest with you. I say, I I don't have the hope that it takes. I don't have the faith that it takes. I don't have the endurance that it takes to do all that, but it's, it's in me because of because of God, or it's available to me. The fourth and remaining member of this entourage of love, so to speak, it says this. It says, love endures through every circumstance. This one's really great. It kind of seems like the first one, like Paul's just being repetitive. But this is like the energizer bunny of the bunch, right? This is like if you've got a group of friends, the person that just never quits. Right? They're always going, always, never stop. The word endure there literally means that it's constant. It remains. It withstands. It is dug into the ground. It is firmly planted. It is not going anywhere. That no matter what you do, no matter how far you run to try to get away from it, it is not going anywhere. And it's going to keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And there's nothing that you can do about it. It not only never gives up, but it endures it is a marathon runner. That's what you need to understand. Love is not a sprint, right? Love is not like Usain Bolt that just, bam, happens and it's gone and you missed your shot. The marathon just keeps going and going and going and going, and it doesn't quit. And it pursues the object of its affection. What is the object and of affection for God's love? It's me and it's you. And his love never stops. Whether you reject it or not does not mean that it doesn't pursue you. I believe personally that the love of God pursues us to the grave all the way into the final moment that there is an opportunity to believe in the free gift of salvation. That's how amazing and tenacious the love of God is for us. I think some of us could maybe say that those sound really great about love. Like you can identify that sounds great, but it seems... Awful, awful pie in the sky, lofty, because the love that I've experienced in my life is nowhere near that. Like, that's good, and, and I, I believe that the Bible's true and all, but I've just never experienced it in my life. And how many of you know that if, if you haven't experienced it, it's much harder to believe that it could be true, right? Like, that could be true for you, but it may not be true for me. Like, that's good, Josh, but I, I don't know. I've, I've never had that. I've never seen that, I hear you reading it. I hear you talking about it, but I've never seen it. If the piano player could make his way back, I told you to be quick. I've never seen it. I was thinking about this and thinking what is the greatest, the greatest example of this love on display for the world? What is it? Is it, is it something that my mom has done for me? I, I was blessed. I grew up with great parents. I grew up in a great family. I was loved. like I, got, I don't know how many times I've been told, that, been told, I love you. I've been told more times than I can count. I tell my son probably 100 times a day that I love him and I think he gets sick of it. So I, I grew up very blessed. I recognize that. But I know people in my own personal life who have, they can count on one hand how many times they've heard that, those, that phrase from their loved ones or even from their parents. So I don't want to take it for granted. I begin to think, it, 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 yeah, I experienced it for my parents. I experienced great love and friendship and relationship with my wife. My son tells me that he loves me, and that's great too. But none of that really is, is, the, is the example of what, of what we read about here. And I came across this scripture, First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is what it says. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Again, this is, this is, this is another writer of the Bible tackling the subject of love, and he says, God showed us how much he loved us. Like, this example that I'm talking about, where in history do we see this on display? And it's it's on display with what God did in his son, Jesus Christ. It's on display for the reason that, that you and I are, are here this morning. We've come to celebrate Easter, maybe because we realize it's a little bit bigger than bunnies and eggs. Right? That stuff's fun. We had an Easter egg, egg hunt yesterday, and it was great. But the, the meaning of Easter and the meaning of the resurrection, it, it far surpasses anything we could crack open inside of an egg and dump into our hand that the greatest display of love the world has ever seen or will ever see is what Jesus did on the cross. And he says this. He said, he came that you and I might have eternal life and that God sent his son, not, not because that we loved God, but because that he loved us. So God's motivation is not our love for him, but his love for us, right? And that we, he would take away our sins. He would take it away. Jesus came solely for the benefit of you and me. It did not benefit Jesus to do what he did. He was already God, right? Jesus didn't prove that he was God by getting on the cross. He was already seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. It was not to come and say, I'm God, hear me roar. Like, to prove that he was God. No, it was, it was for you and it was for me. It speaks to him being God, Right? It's, it's, it's dressed and drenched all in who God is, but it, it's not an attempt to make him God. He was already God. See What we do week in, week out here is we talk about salvation and we talk about moving forward in our walk with God and we talk about we should live this way and we shouldn't live this way. It's not an attempt to control. It's not an attempt to dominate anything. It's an attempt to say that God has our best interest at hand and he demonstrated that on the cross with his son, Jesus Christ, that he came that we may have life and have it to the full, that he gave us eternal life. He took away all of that bad and negative junk that we focus on so much, that we feel so guilty about, that we feel so condemned about, that we walk around hunched over, worrying about something that happened 30 years ago, five years ago, even 10 minutes ago, and it's dominating our lives. I don't know about you, but that's not a way to live. That's not the kind of entourage that I want in my life. I don't want guilt, shame, condemnation. And a finger pointing, follow me all around. That's not the company I want to keep. I don't know about you. I've done it and it's exhausting. And sometimes I still do it. It doesn't lift me up, it puts me down. And there's one other verse that I want to share with you this morning. And this verse really drives it home for me. It puts into into a picture for me these four sweet companions, these soldiers of, of love against evil for me on display. It's Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Luke is describing the crucifixion process, Jesus getting himself nailed to the cross and getting ready to do what he came to do. And this is what it says. It said that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Familiar passage for some, maybe for some of you, it's the first time you've ever heard it. The key word that sticks out to me in this verse, it's not the the father or the forgive. It's the word said, and Jesus said. Now when we hear that in our English language, we think it's like simple past, like he just said it one time, like I went to the store. That's what I did. I said to my wife. But it's in this past tense that they have called the imperfect tense, which means this, and this is not just such a grammar lesson, It's pretty. it's building to something, that it speaks to a, a habitual action, a continual action, something that happened over and over and over again in the past. It's more properly translated at Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or Jesus said over and over again. What's that mean? That means throughout the entire process, as he was being whipped, as the crown of thorns was being placed on his head, as he was being laid on the cross, and with each stroke of the hammer to the nail, or the stroke of the whip to his body as he's seeing in view the people that are doing this to him, the people that he came to save are now killing him and cursing him and condemning him to death. As he's looking at them, what's rising up within him is not fear. It's not anger. It's not bitterness. It's these four things that we just read about. He is bearing all things. He is not giving up on them because he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. That's his expression and his response to what these people are doing. He's saying, I, I, I'm going to bear all things for them. I'm never going to give up on them. I believe the best about them. Each time they nail him to the cross, they whip him on his back, they shove the crown of thorns on his face, they curse him out. Whatever they're doing is so against him. He's believing the best about them. He is hoping all things for them saying that what you're doing today this will not rob you of a future that you can have with me and he endures to the end all the way to the end he never stops he never questions should i do this and it did not benefit him it was not for his benefit it was for you and it was for me hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this i gave it to him i don't know if it's up there Basically it says this regarding Jesus going to the cross. It says as we fix our eyes, as we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Here, here's where it is right here. Because of the joy awaiting him, or some translations, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he is seated at the place of honor besides God's throne. That Jesus endured the cross, despised its shame and its guilt, endured it, because of the joy that was set before him. Yeah, the joy of being reunited with his father, but the joy of being in relationship with all of humanity that he came to save. We're part of that joy, you and me. This, this entourage of love that we, we've talked about, it, it, it's, it's for everybody. It's not a select group, right? And you know what? Here's the amazing thing. This love that God has for you and for me, we, don't, we, don't, we can't earn it. We can't qualify for it. I can't give you a list of things that you need to do. You can't do anything to get it. The only thing that you can ever do is just receive it. That's it. If I had a gift up here this morning and I wanted to give you a gift, and I, and I, I determined in my heart and in my mind that I was going to give somebody a gift before I walked in here, and I walk up and I give them that gift, all they have to do is receive it. It's a gift. If they try to earn it, if they try to pay me for it, it ceases to be a gift, Right? It's a gift here. you know. I just wanted to give it to you. It's a gift. That's what That's what salvation is. That's what God's love is. It's a gift. We receive it. Anybody be sitting here in the morning, this morning and say, God, Josh, I, I know all about this. I've already received it. Yeah, but you know what? I received it a long time ago, and I still need to receive it every day because I struggle with it. God, you still love me? Like, I received it a long time ago, but I've done some crazy stuff, and you, and you still love me? Yeah, I still love you. I still believe the best about you. I still have a confident expectation of your future and I never give up on you. You bow your heads this morning. I just have one question all across this building as you just contemplate. We talked about this morning. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Josh, I, I, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to give my life to him. You can, for the first time or rededicate, I, I want this company of love in my life, this entourage of love in my life that 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 never gives up on me, that is always faithful to me, that is always hopeful for me, and that will never, ever quit in my life. I want that forgiveness. I want to get rid of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the constant thinking about all the bad things I've done and begin a new life in Christ. If that's you this morning, I'd love for you just to shoot up your hand. and raise your hand. You say, why would I raise my hand this morning? Just believe that when you raise your hand, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're just acknowledging thank you. You're acknowledging what's going on on the inside. You're responding to what's called the Holy Spirit working on your heart. Thank you so much. Some of you have been feeling it since you walked in here this morning. You didn't know what it was, but it's just the Holy Spirit saying, I love you. I want you to get your life right. Here's what I want us to do here this morning. I'm gonna have everybody repeat this prayer after me. Why do we pray this? Why do you... the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. So I'm gonna lead us all in this prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you for your Son Jesus. We acknowledge that we need you to forgive us of all our sin. Change me. Become the leader of my life. I give my life to you. I exchange my company of guilt and shame for righteousness, for love for peace. Amen.